Welcome to Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. Here's your host, Ben Wilson. Good morning and welcome to Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. I'm your host, Ben Wilson. I'm here with my sidekick, Rodney, as usual. And today we have a definite Living the Dream moment as I'm spending some time with my good buddy, Scott Tudor, who's a college friend of mine, as we talk wrestling, the world of professional wrestling, or in the South, we call it wrestling. So Scott and I have been friends for a long time. We met in college. Back in that time, it was the heyday of the Monday Night Wars in pro wrestling. So it was a cool time, and I don't know any Anybody who knows more about wrestling than my buddy Scott. So, Scott, welcome to the show. Glad to have you on. Good morning, Ben, and thank you for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. Yeah, you're welcome. You know, being from Western Kentucky, as both of us are, wrestling is a huge thing. And um, since we grew up in the 80s, that was a the heyday for the growth of professional wrestling. Tell me about how you got interested in pro wrestling as a kid in the 80s. So it started out actually around 1980-81. I've got two older sisters that introduced me to Memphis wrestling with Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee, the Moondog, and several other characters like that. I was roughly five years old. I started watching it. Wasn't a huge fan right off the bat, but just something to do, you know, with them. And as I cruised along, I just kind of sort of kept up with it. And then, whether it was a good situation or a bad situation, my parents took me to see a movie called Rocky Three at the theater in 1982. With that was the discovery for me of a character called Thunderlips, which, as we all know now, is uh, Hulk Hogan. And I was mesmerized with his character. He was larger than life. He was just a massive human being. And really, if you remember that scene in Rocky, he pretty much dominated Sylvester Stallone for that entire 10-minute scene. So with that, shortly afterward, in my small rural hometown of Clay, Kentucky, we finally got cable somewhere around 1983, 84 era. And that's when I discovered the WWF, which is what it was called back then, now WWE. And right off the bat, I've seen larger-than-life characters like Hogan, Roddy Piper, Jimmy Snuka, Andre the Giant, etc. The list goes on and on. I could name them for days. And that's what mesmerized me from the time on. With that being said, I still crossed over and kept up with what was going on. I think it was called CWA at the time with Jerry Jarrett, like you said earlier, and Jerry Lawler. And then around 86, I discovered a what was new to me but had been going on for a long time was NWA wrestling and what later became WCW. And these had even more larger-than-life characters with characters such as Dusty Rhodes, Ric Flair, The Horseman, and the list goes on. And so I was just, from there on, I was in love with it. I had WWF, NWA at the time, and CWA at the time. And it was it was a good time for wrestling. Well, I, I like to call it the golden era. Some people argue that it, the golden era was previous to that, but that's what I call it. I got a similar start, too. Um, I guess my first intro into wrestling, it came through my dad. My dad watched wrestling. We had WTBS, and um, so back in the day, the early 80s, it was Georgia Championship Wrestling, uh, hosted by Gordon Soling. The characters back at that time was like Wildfire Tommy Rich, Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer. They had the fabulous Freebirds with Michael Hayes and Terry Bam Bam Gordy, who I love the Freebirds. I mean, they were great. And, you know, these outlandish characters that get up there and yell and beat people up and wrestle and all that. 
I didn't realize it was part of the territory system, but you'd have guys come in like Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes, and eventually Georgia Championship Wrestling got sold to um, what they call the Mid-Atlantic Territory, which that was like Charlotte, North Carolina area and stuff. And so that was when it brought in more of Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes, and Dusty Rhodes was the booker. So I always followed them really, really close. You know, I love the the horsemen. I, I actually like more the heels as opposed to the, the fan favorites because I just liked Ric Flair's look. I liked the Arn Anderson came in. They had a guy named Ole Anderson who's a little bit older, but totally Blanchard. So I watched them on, like, Saturday afternoon. They'd always have a, the Monday Night Wrestling, which would be on USA, and that's where I got introduced to WWF back in the day. But I got started watching them before Hulk Hogan even got popular and came over. I started watching them when their big draws were Bob Backlund was the champion, Jimmy Superfly Snooker, who's one of my favorites. And I always loved Superfly Snooker because he was really the first wrestler I remember who was jumping off the turnbuckle and doing these you know, flying splashes and everything, so it was pretty unique. I definitely agree with you when, when I saw Rocky Three. And Hulk Hogan was in that as Thunderlips. And then I saw him on wrestling. I'm like, oh, man, this guy is cool and watching him. And, of course, then he goes on to win the championship. And, you know, at that point of WWE, it just became like a rock show because you had wrestlers coming out to music. So, like, you had the Freebirds with Bad Street USA and Hulk Hogan. And they went to the cartoons. It was just all my friends were wrestling fans. And we watched the... The Saturday morning cartoon with Hulk Hogan. He had the junkyard dog on his team. And like you said, the heels were the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. I wasn't into the territories as much because I didn't, I just thought there were two brands of wrestling. It was either what was on TBS or USA. But like you said, that territory area in Memphis with Jerry Lawler, that was a huge territory. Yeah. So, yeah, back to reiterate what you were talking about, I guess when I discovered. NWA was actually under the Crockett, and I think that's what you were talking about when yeah. they took it over in Charlotte. So, yeah, looking back at it, I, when I was a kid, I didn't really understand the territory either. I was kind of under the same process as you. I just thought it was different brands of wrestling, and that was the way it was. Then I started noticing that more so for the CWA and the NWA, there were a lot of crossovers. You've seen a lot of characters going between the two territories. Yeah. And something else that brought my attention to this as I was getting older and and understanding things more, also on ESPN, if you recall this, on late Friday nights, they would run AWA shows out of Minnesota. Yeah, I'd watch that. Yeah. This was more in the late 80s, I think, like 87, 88. And then on top of that, when I was coming home from school, this was around junior high for me. WCCW. Yeah, world class. Or reruns were coming on. Oh, I watched that too because I I love the Von Erichs. I like yeah. I like Kerry Von Erich because I mean I was always into fitness and he was he was like the main star for them and he was just you know he'd get all the girls and good looking guy and everything and I was like man I want to work out and have a body like that guy so I could you know <laughs> get girls like him and stuff. They had some real good characters there too because the Freebirds came down and they had a long standing feud with the Von Erichs and the Freebirds. Bruiser right. Brody was there. Actually, the Ultimate Warrior got his start there as yeah. the Dingo Warrior 
and I know uh, Ravishing Rick Rude was it there for a while, and The Undertaker got his start there. I think he was known as like Big Red or Big Texas Red or something like that because he was from Texas, and he got his start before going to WC or NWA WCW. Yeah, you are absolutely correct. Big Texas Red, if I'm not mistaken, is what he went by, and I also knew him in Memphis Wrestling, believe it or not, as the Master of Pain. Oh, he was the Master of Pain. Okay. Yep, that was him. That was The Undertaker. If you go back, you can YouTube it or anything like that now and go back and, and discover that and be like, wow, that really was The Undertaker. Yeah. And I'll tell you, when I really, really discovered Mark Callis was when he was actually Mean Mark Callis in WCW or NWA. Yeah. And he was part of a tag team skyscrapers with Danny Spivey. Yeah, that was, that was a good tag team. I, I was hoping they were going to get a bigger push because at that time in WCW, you had those guys. You had the Road Warriors. The Steiner brothers were starting to get bigger. You had Doom with Ron Simmons and Hacksaw Butch Reed. It was interesting, though, how wrestling has evolved just from – you know, from the 60s and 70s, it was always, you know, big guy. It was kind of one or two characters. It would be a really big guy like a Gorilla Monsoon or, a you know, the Crusher or some old school guy. And they, they wouldn't really be, you know, these big muscular guys as far as cut and definition. They were just big guys, just heavy guys. And then on the opposite end, you'd have people like, handsome harley race or the original nature boy buddy rogers and the guy was like the clean cut guy good image bruno san martino guys like that but then when it got to the early 80s they started focusing on more of these guys that look kind of like movie stars because i remember when wildfire tommy rich was on nwa and you had him and michael hayes you had these guys with like long blonde hair rick flair was the same way and they you know started marketing it different as guys who were like kind of teen idols and they're marketing not only just to the the men but to the women because my mom even liked wrestling i mean she loved paul orndorff mr wonderful and she was like oh i'm just gonna watch because she was like he's a good looking guy had a great body all that you know as it evolved in in wwf hulk hogan was built but you had guys like ravishing rick rude ultimate warrior carrie von eric who they were going from this you know just a big heavy guy to a really cut guy you know, guys, too, like the Rock and Roll Express with Ricky Morton, I don't think there was anybody who was a bigger baby face and a, a popular with the the young women or than Ricky Morton. I mean, I hear stories back in the day where, like, he would just get mobbed, and they'd run, like, two different cards in NWA. They'd have, like, the, the A card, which would be, like, Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, the Horsemen, those guys, and they'd do a B show with, like, the Rock and Roll Express with... Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson, you have the Midnight Express with beautiful Bobby Eaton, Stan Lane, or Dennis Condry at that time. And they the B show was outdrawing the A show because of the, the popularity of the Rock and Roll Express and tag team in general. I agree with all that. And to circle back a little bit, I think the era of the muscular man and the movie star look started with superstar Billy Graham in the late 70s, early 80s. I think that's where wrestling took a turn because his star power was just unreal at the time when he first took over and of course he looked like a Greek god. He was chiseled out of stone. You know, you've seen pictures of him and I and as much as I love Hulk Hogan, he's my all time favorite, I'll admit it now. I'm a Hulkamaniac for life. I think Hulk Hogan took a, a page directly out of Superstar Billy Graham's character. 
Yeah, well, I think he did because Billy Graham, when he was in wrestling at that time, he was with the WWF territory, which was you know the Connecticut, New York, Northeast territory. And so Hulk Hogan was in Vern Gagne's territory in AWA, which is Minnesota, and he kind of had the Midwest area. So I think Hulk Hogan's character kind of came from having something in the AWA to be like the Billy Graham. You know, one of the things that also evolved in wrestling at, in that period, which what happened in wrestling in the 80s was basically the birth of everything that we see in wrestling today. And we'll get on to today's wrestling in a little bit. It's the ability to conduct the great promo interview. Because before, they didn't really have the... You didn't have to have the charisma and all that as much. But when you got into Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes and Hulk Hogan, the guys that cut these promos, they were energetic. They got you excited. They were like, well, I'm going to beat up the Iron Sheik and I'm going to you know, be the champion or, or insult in this or that. And those guys did promos better than anybody. And it was like if you wanted to be a top star in wrestling, you had not only looked the part, but to be able to wrestle, but you had to be able to talk. Michael Hayes from the Freebirds was great at that too. So what were some of the great interviews that you remember from back in the day or charismatic guys? As far as charisma goes, I don't think they, that there's anybody above the Nature Boy Ric Flair. I mean, I think he could cut a promo in his sleep better than most of the guys, you know, from past, present, or future. Hulk Hogan always had a good energetic promo, but, you know, Hogan were mostly the same thing, typically, but he could bring high energy. Macho Man Randy Savage was oh, yeah. a promo king because he would go crazy and just say stuff from the right field or left field and just, you know, bring it. And, you know, you would laugh and think, man, this guy is super entertaining. And, that, and at that point, that's what it was all about. Yeah. You know, another, a guy we haven't mentioned yet, definitely an icon in wrestling, is uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper. I mean, w- when he started uh, Piper's Pit, one of my f- fondest or I guess early memories of wrestling is when he had Jimmy Superfly Snuka on Piper's Pit. He was insulting him, and he hit him over the head with a coconut. And, I mean, he really hit Snook over the head with that coconut. I don't think anybody personified a heel back in the day better than Roddy Piper and Ric Flair. And they were two completely different guys because, like, Ric Flair's character was to be, you know, this rich guy living the life of luxury, the styling and profiling, kiss-dealing, wheeling-dealing son of a gun, as he would say you know, the fine suits and everything, because he was supposed to be the heel opposite to Dusty Rhodes, who was the son of the plumber, the the common man, which wrestling good guys faces, the best ones are the ones that can appeal to the common people, because I feel like, to me, if I'm naming like the greatest of all time, you had, as far as faces, you got Hulk Hogan, but one guy we'll get to in a little bit, the Stone Cold Steve Austin, because Steve... Because especially that time when like we were in college, he was the 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 redneck guy, the southern guy who is a beer drinking, you know, just regular trash talking guy, and that appealed to a lot of southerners and definitely a lot of college people. And it got, you know, it was interesting how WWE evolved or WWF evolved because. You know, like you said, everyone had their own territory, and you had the WWF in the Northeast. You had Mid-Atlantic with Jim Crockett promotions in the Charlotte area. You had 
world class in Dallas. You had the Georgia territory. You even had Florida championship wrestling. Where I live now, Florida has always been a hotbed for wrestling. I mean, Dusty Rhodes was a big part of that. Barry Windham started there. You had Mike Graham. A lot of people. Ron Simmons actually started there. And, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the total package started there. Yeah, yeah, I think Lex Luger started there too, because I think he's from Tampa. And of course, Tampa's a hotbed for wrestling talent. I mean, there are a lot of wrestling people that live there now. Eventually, though, these territories, if they disbanded from the NWA, which was like the governing body for all these territories, I noticed where they started to suffer because they lost that talent exchange. Because World Class is a prime example of it. I mean, back in the day, they had Ric Flair coming as the national, the, the world champion to battle the Von Erics for the title. Or he would go to AWA or St. Louis or wherever. And when they lost that, they weren't getting the same talent in there. I thought it was interesting because you know Jerry Jarrett and Lawler held on for a while, but eventually the TV dominance just it got to the point where these territories just couldn't make it. You had UWF down there with Bill Watts, so yeah, well, let me ask you this. All right, I know you're you're a Hogan fan, but um, who are your, who are your favorite uh, stars in the early and late '80s besides Hogan? You mentioned earlier, I'll circle back again a little bit. You you were taken with the, the bad guys right off the bat. I didn't catch on to the bad guys until I got a little older and could appreciate what they were doing. I When I was a kid, I actually took it for what it was, and I hated the bad guys and loved the good guys. You know, the typical kid that was a wrestling fan at the time. So early 80s was... You know, like you mentioned, Hogan, and then I liked Paul, Mr. Wonderful Orndorff, when he was a good guy before he turned heel. The major heel turn in 1986, that you probably remember it, when he piledrived Hogan right after their tag team match. Mm-hmm. That was like the biggest thing that happened in my neighborhood. All the kids were talking about it. It's pretty crazy how funny we kept up with it back then. I really liked Orndorff back then. Let's see. Jerry Lawler, of course, for CWA. He was the, the face of that organization and then of course you couldn't keep up with whether he was a good guy or a bad guy because from week to week he would change Mm -hmm. in wcw when i first started liking that thing had already came over there and and ricky steamboat was over there which he had hopped back from wwf at the time back over to to that so i really liked those two characters steamboat was a big one because i just thought he was super talented oh he was great in the ring athletic to this day, I still feel like one of the best matches I've ever watched was probably 1989, Steamboat versus Flair, that series they had. And then the match that I'm thinking about was, I think it was called the Chi-Town Rumble. Mm-hmm. And that match just lasted forever. And I was, even as a, as a kid, I was not bored. You know, I, I watched every move of that match and was just on the edge of my seat. So those are just a, a few of them, you know, I'm sure I'm forgetting some. Junkyard Dog was a big one. Andre, I always liked Andre because I was mesmerized with his, you know, size and, and all that. And then, you know, of course, Hacksaw Duggan when he came through. And see, a lot of people already knew Hacksaw from the, the Mid-South and things like that. I didn't because I hadn't discovered that yet. Yeah. But when he first came through WWF, I thought he was larger than life. Hillbilly Jim's another one. I, I miss him. him. Of course, I could relate to him because he was an old Kentucky boy. I know. I, I always liked Hillbilly Jim, too. I mean, I didn't like all the heels. I liked Hogan. I liked the Junkyard Dog. I love Superfly Snooker. And one of the things 
you know, we'll get into a little bit about what we think maybe were some miscues in WWE booking, but I always felt it was a mistake in the first WrestleMania. They had Roddy Piper versus and Paul Orndorff versus Hulk Hogan and Mr. T in the championship. And of course, Mr. T was super popular at the time and he was coming off a of Rocky three and from the A team and everything. But Superfly Snooker didn't get to wrestle in that. And I was like, I felt like he deserved that opportunity because he was one of the main stars. I mean, he was, and he had this big feud going on with Roddy Piper. So it didn't make sense to me for them to do that. But as we'll kind of get into, and really, it came into play with Crown Jewel, the pay per view from the other day. I, I don't like it when WWE and WCW did it too, like with Rodman and Carl Malone. They bring in these guys that they're not wrestlers. They're coming from Hollywood or maybe a boxer or something like that. And they try to bring right. them into wrestling and then they want to put these guys over over another wrestler. And I don't like that because I think you should like protect your own. But I, I think it also comes down to the the believability because like you i thought all that was real and everything so right. and my parents were like oh no it's fake or whatever i'm like well no they're beating the crap out of that guy they j- jumped on that guy and that's what people today even if they take the the attitude well wrestling is fake because of the outcome whatever the outcome is they're still executing the power slams the drop kicks you're still getting hit they're still doing the slaps so it's a tremendously physically tolling but i love superfly snooka one of the popular wrestlers in the the 80s that i really didn't like i did not like the ultimate warrior at all i did not like his character i i loved ravishing rick rude because i mean my dad kind of looked like him and he kind of had the look of the magnum pi and i love magnum ta from nwa I mean, he was a good one before he got hurt. But I loved Ravishing Rick Rude, and I loved his manager, Bobby the Brain Heenan, who, in my opinion, is the greatest manager of all time and one of the greatest talkers ever in wrestling. Man, I was like, this warrior, all he does is run in there and run around, and he only has a couple of moves, and Rick Rude's a much better wrestler, but they kept booking the warrior, so... It was a great time, and of course in WW or um, NWA, WCW, one guy we haven't mentioned yet, or actually two guys, we haven't mentioned Barry Windham too much or Lex Luger. They were two big stars, but I love Barry Windham. I think from a, a technical standpoint, Barry Windham was one of the best wrestlers ever. He was just so good in the ring. You know, he was a guy who could be a face, he could be a heel. You know, it was interesting when Sting came along. He was thought of and this is sting the wrestler not sting the singer two completely different guys you know it was interesting because they were trying to go to phase rick flair out with sting but they couldn't phase rick flair out so i guess talk about that time when it was the horseman versus sting so sting was one of my favorite faces still to this day is and i'm just going to make this clear right now my favorite version of sting was the Flat top, blonde, neon green pants, just larger than life, boisterous fan favorite. That was my favorite version of things. I agree. The Crow version was cool. I, I get it. You know, and at the time, he probably needed to, what they say in the business is evolve. But I just, when I look back, my favorite version of thing was that just young, crazy, flat top guy that just flew around the ring and just, you know, went crazy and fought the horseman every other week and 
You're absolutely correct. Barry Windham is one of the most underrated wrestlers in the history of wrestling as far as I'm concerned. And I think a lot of it has to do with Barry Windham was around, and you and I just talked about this a few minutes back, about how the wrestlers were now becoming like these big chiseled bodybuilders and, you know, super conditioned athletes. And Barry Windham, you know, for lack of better terms, didn't spend a whole lot of time in the gym. No. And he didn't have to. He was still executing. He could still go all night long, as Flair used to say. And I'm going to be honest, one of my favorite versions of The Horseman was with Barry Windham. I thought that was a great version of The Horseman. I thought it was a great look. Yeah. And you probably recall this match. One of my favorite matches of all time, tag team-wise, was Barry Windham and Arn Anderson in a street fight with the old tag team called Doom, which was Ron Simmons and Butch Reed. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't seen that match, you know, anybody listening, if you haven't seen that match, go back and watch because it is a classic. Arn Anderson, he was a good one. So, yeah, we were talking about being able to cut a promo. If you go, there's two guys that stand out as far as intelligent promos, and they took it very serious. They didn't go over the top. They didn't talk left field. Jason Snake. Arn Anderson. If you listen to those two guys cut promos, they could talk intelligently and make you believe exactly what they were saying. They could really dig into the psyche of the game, and and those two guys could cut promos. As far as I'm concerned, probably in the top five. Yeah, you know I loved all those guys. We talked a little bit about tag teams earlier, and we talked about the Rock and Roll Express and Midnight Express. They were great because the 80s and early 90s were a great time for tag teams. I mean, it really, I guess the first tag team I remember was the Freebirds, but there was also the Wild Samoans in the WWE uh, or WWF. And, of course, that lineage has gone down to even Roman Reigns today. They were great, but... Probably the most dominant tag team from my youth was the Road Warriors. And, you know, these guys came in and they were big, strong, like power lifting guys. And they just dominated everything. And to see a guy like Hawk, who I think Hawk was about six foot three, six foot four, and about 270 pounds, flying off the top, <laughs> clotheslining a guy, it was just amazing. And, you know, they kind of paved the way for other tag teams building that same thing like doom that you mentioned with ron simmons and butch reed they were sort of the 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 black version of the road warriors because i mean ron simmons was a powerhouse 290 300 pound guy former florida state nose tackle and butch reed was as strong as knox too and you saw this transition into these big strong tag teams that eventually had demolition in wwe who was basically their version of the Road Warriors in WWE. Before that, you had the British Bulldogs. But you still had the technical guys, too, like the Hart Foundation with Bret Hart. The Rougeau brothers were good. So just a lot of great times. But before we leave and go to the Monday Night Wars, one of my favorite wrestlers in WWE, and he started in AWA, was Kurt Henning. And when he got to WWE, was Mr. Perfect. Talk about him, because I... To me, I think he's definitely one of like the top 20 wrestlers of all time. So, Kurt Henning, I discovered him, and I mentioned earlier when I would watch AWA on ESPN on late Friday night, somewhere around 80, late 86, 87-ish time frame, I think it was. 
Kurt Hennig was, you know, something new. He was a new character. He was young. And I'll pull this one out of the, out of my hat. His tag team partner a lot of times was a gentleman by the name of Big Scott Hall, which most people think that Scott Hall just came out of nowhere and showed up in WWF as Razor Ramon. Mm-hmm. Scott Hall had been wrestling for 10 years, maybe longer, when he came out of that. But circling back around to Kurt Henning, one of the biggest matches, and keep in mind earlier I said I was keeping up with CWA, WCW, or NWA, and WWF, and AWA. So Kurt Henning, I was watching him on the AWA, and he ended up getting the belt over there. Well, there was, if I'm not mistaken, the event was called Super Clash. Do you remember these events? I remember Super Clash because I remember in 88... That's when Kerry Von Erich and uh, Jerry Lawler had that big battle, and I mean Kerry Von Erich had a, you know, got all bloodied up and everything and lost. But I think that was Super Clash Three. So if I'm not mistaken, one of the Super Clashes, and all the Super Clashes, what they were doing was pulling like CWA, AWA, WCCW. They were all pulling together, and in all honesty, what they were doing was trying to match up with WWF at the time because WWF was on fire, gaining popularity. Yeah. One of the best feuds that I remember was actually Jerry Lawler versus Kurt Henning. Mm-hmm. Back, back to that character. I would flip over on Saturday morning and watch Memphis Wrestling, and they were showing the highlights of the Kurt Henning and, and Jerry Lawler feud, and it, it carried on over into Memphis, and they sold out the Memphis Coliseum like several weekends straight between Lawler and and. Kurt Henning, and they just had some dynamite matches. I mean, it was a good story. That The psychology in the ring was amazing. You know, he was a good heel for that territory. And then, of course, when Lawler went over to their territory, he was the heel. So it was back and forth. And, and Kurt Henning, I had discovered him well before he became Mr. Perfect, and I thought he was a great, great wrestler, great character before that. Of course, he sharpened his tools, and I, I think the Mr. Perfect persona was for lack of better terms, and, and no pun intended, was perfect for him Yeah. when he came over to WWF, and he carried that moniker for years after that. So I, I just thought he was a great character and, and a good athlete. Yeah, and he was really the WWE answer. He came over at the time that Ravishing Rick Rude left, and so they kind of needed to have this heel who um, was a great technical wrestler like Rick Rude was, but also had that look. And man, I tell you, the, the interviews that Perfect did were just fantastic. And him pairing up with Bobby Heenan was just amazing. And the thing with Kurt Henning as well is when he came to WWE, I think he kind of evidenced a transition in to, to more technical wrestling because a guy like Bret Hart in the late 80s and stuff, he was always relegated to being the tag team and with Jim the Anvil Nightheart is a heart foundation. But the fact that Perfect had such good matches with you know, Kerry Von Erich and others, it allowed them to transition guys like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels from tag team into being these single wrestlers. And you were focusing on your your main faces being guys that were about 230 to 240 pounds and not the 300-pounders like had been the case with Hulk Hogan. All right. And I personally like that style of wrestling better because you look at the WWE now, I mean, my favorite wrestlers are the guys like AJ Styles who can just do anything in the ring, your Seth Rollins, all that. And I always look at guys like Henning and Bret Hart and 
as being the forefront of that and eventually Shawn Michaels. So what I was going to say there to add to that is some of the matches that Perfect had with Bret Hart were some of the best, you know, just pure wrestling matches that WWF had had at that time because exactly what you said before that, they were more focused on the big Hollywood-looking guys, the big muscular guys who, you know, the old saying goes, didn't know a wrist lock from a wristwatch. And your Bret Hart's and your Kurt Hennings and your Shawn Michaels, man, they could wrestle somebody out of their boot back then. And I'll admit, I was not a huge Bret Hart fan as a singles wrestler. I was more of the Hart Foundation. And, you know, as you mentioned, the tag teams, that was one thing that, that kept me really big on the WWF because back in the mid to late 80s tag team wrestling over there was huge and it was it was hot I mean they had some great characters and I just loved the tag team wrestling and we can get more into that too as we talk about the Monday Night Wars and today's wrestling but back Mm -hmm. in the late 80s the tag teams were just amazing yeah no they were great well let's go ahead and transition into the Monday Night Wars because really I mean I watch wrestling consistently from you know, when I started in the early 80s through the 80s and then into the early 90s. But then it started to lull a little bit because they they kind of were going into these, for lack of a better term, just really dumb ideas. Like, I think in the WCW they had, like, the dynamic dudes with Shane Douglas and Johnny Ace. And, I mean, I was kind of like just corny stuff and the ding-dongs and all that. And I think it was that they needed to have something new going on there and also in WWF it was just so much interview and talk and stuff I'm like well let me just see the wrestling and then all of a sudden they they changed and W I guess it was Raw started in 93 I think I mean to me the the transition that just made Monday night so awesome was when Stone Cold Steve Austin unveiled his character because Austin had been a guy he he's uh, from Texas he started out in WCW and he had been part of like the Hollywood Blondes with Brian Pillman and he had been different things in WCW but he was always kind of a mid-card guy he would be the guy that would battle for the TV title maybe the U.S. title but I mean, when he did that Stone Cold thing, that just took off. And then you had the Monday Night Wars. Just talk about that because, I mean, I remember back in the day, I mean, you and I lived on the same floor in Hart Hall or maybe a floor down. But I know you guys had your Monday Night thing. We had I had another one I would go to back and forth. But we all kind of always talked wrestling and everything. And just, just talk about how awesome that was. So you are absolutely correct. WWF slash WWE went through a major lull, in my opinion, from around 91 to about 95. You hit the nail on the head. They just couldn't find what they were looking for. They were trying all these corny tricks. You know, WCW was guilty of it, too. You named, like, the dudes with attitudes and and all that. You know, WWE had Doink the Clown, and I was just never a fan of of any of that, that craziness. And, I, you know, I was going starting, you know, graduating high school, starting college, so maybe that had a little bit to do with it, but I think it circles back to they just did not have what was entertaining to me. The only thing that kept me hanging on to WCW ever at that time was, you know, Hogan did jump ship, and after he had taken like a year or two layoff and showed up over there, which that was unheard of, Sting was still Sting, my favorite version of Sting, 
the Road Warriors were back and forth from LOD, which was what they were called in WWF, but the Road Warriors in uh, NWA, WCW, and the Steiner Brothers, which admittedly, the Steiner Brothers, my all-time favorite tag team, bar none. That can be argued, I know, but they kept me hanging on because of their athleticism, because my background in amateur wrestling, they really did a great transition with it, and I'm, I know I'm, I'm talking a lot, but, but let's slide into the Monday Night Wars while you and I were at uh, Murray State University. So the Monday Night Wars really, to me, started up when, so Monday Night Raw started in 93. Even with that, with the Raw at Warzone and, and all that, whatever they were they were calling it back then, it was still in a lull. I mean, you still had, you know, Doink the Clown and, and things like that going on. Stuff just wasn't over. It just wasn't, wrestling wasn't what it was, you know, five years before that. And when WCW grabbed Hogan and a couple other characters and they started this thing called Monday Nitro, well, that's when I think it really started picking up, okay? And honestly, McMahon, and he said it himself, that's when he started kind of get, you know, getting a little nervous. He started watching the production value of, of WCW and their, you know, the quality and, and the characters and the storylines and all that really, really coming up. And he started getting nervous. Well, he got even more nervous when a couple of his characters were offered a lot of money. Of course, we all know the story. Eric Bischoff went to Ted Turner and said, if you want to be the number one wrestling program, you're going to have to spend some money. And mm-hmm. spend money they did because they, they grabbed a couple of varsity players, I'd like to call them, or star players, in uh, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and they lured them over with the money. And then we all know that's when the NWO started, right? Right. And, and NWO was the hottest thing going i don't care what anybody says i'll argue to the you know the day is long nwo ushered in the attitude era i mean whether everybody likes it or not wwf coined the phrase yeah you know good for them but nwo was the ones that started it if you go back and watch how hogan just transformed into a heel and i mean you know credit to hogan because he was an awesome heel because everybody hated his guts and he just played the part to the nth degree. Oh, yeah, no, he was and, fabulous. Oh, yeah. They drew heat, man. What was it, Bash at the Beach, when the, the famous turn took place? And yeah. The ring was just full of garbage. I had never seen a man just fill a ring full of garbage and bottles and cans and paper. And the fans were just ticked off. And I mean, even the adults, even the adults were like, you know, they were outraged over this whole thing. You know, they drew more heat than anybody and then of course WWF tried to catch on to that later or WWE tried to catch on to that later with, with DX which we all know DX and the founding fathers of NWO were part of a group called The Click when they were all in the WWE you know they were just kind of going back and forth with it and a lot of people you know say DX ushered in the attitude era well that's not true it was really NWO because they were the ones drawing the heat for being the heels and they, they made being a bad guy cool yeah, no, they did. You know, for, for college kids like you and, and me, hey, man, that was that was the ticket, right? NWO was was it. That was the coolest thing. Everybody was getting NWO shirts. They were getting the bandanas. They were they were like, this is awesome because they were coming out and interfering in matches, and they were just crushing the people that were the faces up until that, that point, you know, because everybody, I think wrestling needed a turn, and it was the right place, the right time. People were... You know, sick of the lull, as you and I called it earlier. 
it was the same characters, it was the corny stuff, and NWO came in and just squashed that. Yeah, because it was interesting at that time, I mean, a lot of the stars from the 80s, like, you know, your Dusty Rhodes, your Kerry Von Erich, when Dusty Rhodes had retired to a degree, I mean, he, you know, Dusty Rhodes was like 50 years old at that time. Ric Flair was getting up there. I mean, Ric Flair could obviously still go, but Kerry Von Erich had died. Terry Gordy from the Freebirds had, he wasn't the same guy. I mean, Terry Gordy. I love Terry Gordy. He was one of the best big men in wrestling ever. He was just agile. He could just flat wrestle. Now, he didn't have the 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 cut that like an Ultimate Warrior did, but he got really big in Japan with Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody and then also with Dr. Death Steve Williams. And he was yeah. he was going to come to WWF, I think, or I, I, I know because he and – Steve Williams went over to NWA, they won the world title, but then he went back to Japan. But they were going to make him like the next big star, and then he had this overdose on a plane. So they were kind of trying to find new guys to step in. And that NWO thing, it was. I mean, Hall and Nash just came in, and they were cocky and arrogant, and they could make you hate them, and they were dominating. It was just something fresh. And they the other thing I liked about that product as well is – they brought in the smaller, more more smaller guys who were just great technicians in the ring, like Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit came along, Chris Jericho, Jushin Thunder Liger, and so you had a, just a great talent pool there between small guys, young guys, and even like crazy guys because they even had Cactus Jack before he went over to <laughs> WWE and became a Mankind. Well, one thing I want you to talk about, too, because we've talked primarily uh, in the Monday Night Wars with WWF and WCW, but there was a brand of wrestling that started in the mid-'90s that really transformed how wrestling is today, and that's ECW. It was based out of Philadelphia, and it was wild. Talk about that. So ECW, I was a huge fan of, of wrestling at the time, and I actually discovered ECW while we were at Murray State. Yeah, it was on late nights on like a Saturday somewhere. Right. You had to be at the right place at the right time. And oddly enough, a guy in one of my, I was an occupational safety and health major, and we were all in a class, and somehow or another wrestling came up, and this guy mentioned ECW, and I'm like, man, I've been a wrestling fan for 20 years at at that time. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he told me exact channel, exact time when to catch it and I, I did it on purpose I stayed up on a, of course it wasn't hard for me to stay up as a college kid on Saturday night but I made sure I was in my dorm room watching this channel and it was a 30 minute segment and this crazy show called ECW came on and it was out of the uh, Philadelphia of course Paul Heyman was, was running the show and I was I knew Paul Heyman when he was called Paul E. Dangerously from WCW. I don't know if you remember that or not. Yeah, no, he was with the Wild Samoans, or Samoan SWAT team. Right. So, and he also managed for a short time the uh, uh, the Hollywood Blinds with Stone Cold and uh, Brian Pillman. Yeah. He had had a connection with them there for a while, too. All right, so I watched this 30-minute segment, and it was the most fresh wildest thing that I had seen at that time and I said I've got to get more of it and so that summer I I left Murray and went home and got a job in a factory called Gibbs Die Casting 
And oddly enough, myself and some guys there were talking about it, and this one guy had hours upon hours of ECW on the. And I'm dating myself then on VHS. I still have VHS tapes too. I still have my VCR. <laughs> yeah, I've got a I've got a DVD VHS combo. Believe it or not, crazy, huh? So this guy let me borrow his tape, and I took him home back to Clay and kept him for a couple weeks. He was getting this ECW off of satellite at the time. Cable, regular cable, wasn't carrying it. You had to have a satellite in the area that I grew up in. And I took these tapes home and I gathered all my neighborhood buddies up and I was like, guys, we, you guys got to check this out. And like on a late Saturday night after everybody got in from their dates or whatever, we had a, a gathering at, at my parents' house because they had converted in a, a garage into a living room and it was kind of segregated from the house and I could have up to 20 people in that room and my parents would never know it. So... I pulled in uh, probably 15 buddies of mine. We started watching these ECW tapes, man, and it just caught fire right there. And then everybody was like, we got to find more of this. We got to find more of this. And then people started purchasing. You could go on their website because now the Internet was was a big thing, right? And you could go on their website and order VHS tapes. We were doing that, and uh, then we were pulling those in and watching them. Like the Battle of the Bam Bam, to speak of one of your favorites, they brought Gordy over to fight Bam Bam Bigelow. Yeah. And I don't know if you ever saw that match, but it was a good one because I love both of those guys, both great big men in the, in the business. Mm-hmm. You know, WC or ECW just caught fire, man. And from there on, it was just, okay, if they were having a pay-per-view, we were getting it. We were all pitching in and ordering it. You know, about that time was probably 96, 97. I think that's when they first started their first pay-per-views they had like guilty as charged and and they just they started catching fire and and what appealed to me about that organization was the pure athleticism and just the raw wrestling that they did and and something about that wrestling reminded me of the old cwa out of memphis there was just something on that level that just resonated with me it was far beyond that, but it was something about how that wrestling was just simple and just raw. And I was, I was in love right off the bat, and it was fresh. It wasn't the big production. It wasn't the big show. I mean, it was just crazy, extreme wrestling, and I, I loved it. Yeah, I, one of the reasons why I liked it so much is because at that time when it started to air, that was where so much of the wrestling shows it was just interviews so you'd have like the rock you know stone cold or whatever they'd do as much talking on the on the wrestling shows as they did wrestling i'm like well i want to see the wrestling going on here and so when i started watching it i saw terry funk on there and i remembered terry funk from wwf to a little bit but mainly in the nwa wcw with his battles with rick flair and for those who don't know terry funk that guy is one crazy sob to be honest (laughs) to bar to to borrow the phrase from stone cold but i mean terry funk was like the face of ecw and he was wild and crazy and they were doing like barbed wire matches and cactus jack was in there and they had a wrestler named Taz who was 
probably I, I don't know how tall Taz was. He's maybe like five six, five seven, five eight, probably like five eight. But built like a fire hydrant and doing these suplexes and this they had a guy named the Sandman who would get up there and come to the with a big kendo stick and it was just wild stuff and and it was definitely very raw because I mean some of the women valets they had there they they didn't have much on at all and so I felt like it was this thing that kind of led WCW and WWE to it became part of the attitude era to have a bunch of these really attractive women but not wearing much because back when I was growing up you your attractive valet and managers it was like Miss Elizabeth and she was portrayed as this you know very attractive but kind of like a girl next door very well dressed Classic. yeah and so then you get into the 90s and you've got like the nitro girls wearing you know sports bras and dance outfits and stuff and it's like there's not much be a sable from wwe i mean they had what bra and panty matches and playboy pose downs and all that stuff that you do that today and it's politically incorrect but back then it was par for the course that was it i loved ecw i agree 100 percent like i like i said i think nwo ushered the attitude era in but ECW had a huge influence on the Attitude Era, and I'll take it one step further. Stone Cold Steve Austin sharpened his character in ECW. That's right, he did. Because of his connection with Paul Heyman, when they were in WCW, Paul Heyman kind of got away from WCW, was doing his own little thing. Stone Cold, at the time, was Stunning Steve. And And let me just say, I was a Stunning Steve fan, and I remember Stunning Steve when he came through Memphis. I remember Stunning Steve when he was on WCCW. And a little, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he done a short time in AWA. And I may be confusing AWA with WCCW back in the late 80s. But I was already a fan, and you're correct. He was more of a mid-card guy. But he was making a living. He was doing well. And one of the best matches I remember, not to get too far off course, but was Stunning Steve versus Rick Steamboat in WCW for the U.S. title. That mm. was a great match. If you guys have never seen that, go on back and, and check that out because a lot of people just know Stone Cold for the wrestling style that he was in, in WWE, and Stunning Steve could wrestle. I mean, he, he was a technical guy back when he was over there. So, very good match. So, back to what I was saying is, you know, ECW had a huge, huge impact on WCW and WWF and I think you know sad to say and ever how you want to call it the Vince McMahon is the king of that where he cherry picks the best things from other organizations and brings them to his and and his organization flourishes because of it I think that he cherry picked the highlights of ECW you know the scantily clad ladies the the high action the you know, WCW actually took a page out of ECW with the cruiserweights, and I'm going to give WCW credit because they, the cruiserweight division back in the day I, was one of my favorite parts. Oh, it was fantastic. And WWF didn't have that. WWE did not have that, and then they straight up borrowed that from w, uh, WCW and ECW because ECW was bringing guys in from Japan, Mexico, doing all the high flying stuff. And, you know, I feel like a lot of the catchphrases and a lot of the, the talking and things like that in the two big organizations were directly derived from ECW because it resonated with the fans. 
Yeah. I think with ECW, too, I mean, when it aired, it was late night. I think it came on like at 11 o'clock or may, maybe it was 1030. Yeah. But, so that'd be 1130 on the East Coast. But since it was on in a later hour, I mean, they were just they, – they could get away with more as uh, far as content that was not necessarily PG and language. And, yeah. you know, if you're airing something on USA at 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock, you got to be kind of careful. But then, I mean – I think WWF and WCW saw what the popularity, and they're like, "Well, we got to cash in on it." Because I, I really didn't care for WWF at all until in that mid '90s, and really in, until the Stone Cold thing, because I just felt it was boring. And but I tell you what, one one thing that really helped besides Stone Cold, because like I said, I, I just felt if if I'm naming like my f- top five wrestlers of all time. I mean, you're going to have Ric Flair in there. You're going to have Hulk Hogan. There are going to be some debates on the others. You know, do you include Dusty Rhodes? Uh, if you're old school, do you go back to someone like Harley Race? But I think Stone Cold's got to be in your top five somewhere. Another guy that we haven't talked about, well, we talked about briefly, but not in the WWF, was the transformation from Mean Mark Callis to The Undertaker. And he right. was such a revolutionary wrestler because he was six foot nine, and I remember him walking those ropes and stuff. And I'm like, you just didn't see big guys do that. And you know, he was really the first big guy to go into this whole agility skill set that now you see from guys like Roman Reigns. So just talk about his impact because I know we had a mutual friend in college named Ryan Hale who lived near you and was like a a, a huge, huge fan of The Undertaker. But just kind of talk about um, his impact on wrestling. So The Undertaker, if I'm not mistaken, made his debut in WWF. And I can say WWF because it was still WWF at the time. In 
they're really not that great on the mic when they first come in. I think Brock Lesnar is that kind of a guy. You know, pairing him with Paul Heyman is genius because you've got to have somebody who can talk for him. So Paul Bear, of course, Paul Bear was Percy Pringle back in World Class. But having a guy with that kind of experience to help you to be your voice and get over, I thought was huge because, I mean, The Undertaker was a tremendous talent, but back at that time when he came in, you also had to be able to talk. And he he eventually got there, but, I mean, Paul, Paul Bear was huge. Agreed. And I, I'm with you, and I'm glad that see, I, just, I think you and I could probably talk all day because you just pulled out Percival Pringle. You know, he was a big-time manager over in WCCW, and I think he did some time in AWA as a manager. And a lot of people that weren't versed in the other wrestling organizations only knew him as as Paul Bearer. But he was a completely different style of manager. He was almost on the level of of a Bobby the Brain Heenan when he was in those other organizations. He had bright blonde hair. Mm -hmm. He he had a cane and and wore the suits and just a, a big, loud guy. And and, and managed, but you are absolutely correct. He was the perfect pairing with Undertaker because when you first brought that character on, you know, not only did Mark probably not have the mic skills that he needed, but that character was meant not to speak. You know, that character was meant to be mysterious, and, and mysterious he was for, you know, several years. Mm-hmm. I, I would go to a fair number of wrestling matches, but usually we'd end up going to... Um like Carbondale, Illinois, because they, they had a lot of like NWA, WCW cards there. <laughs> the first pay-per-view I actually went to was in St. Louis, a big wrestling town, and it was Hell in the Cell. And I think it was 97, and he fought, I think he fought Mankind. But, I mean, you had this six nine guy cl- climbing on the top of a cage that was like um, several feet in the air and throwing people off. I mean, just the agility for somebody like that was just amazing. I think it was 97 because that was the – he beat Shawn Michaels, I think, and that was when Kane, he came in as like the demonic brother of the Undertaker and ripped the door off of that steel cage and came in and plowed Tombstone the Undertaker. And we were like, my gosh, what happened? But – because of the Undertaker, it evolved for a demand for these big guys who could move. You know, Kevin Nash was that kind of a guy, but he didn't have the agility of the Undertaker. But I mean, the longevity of the Undertaker has been amazing. But I will say this: as a wrestling fan, you know, I'm kind of hoping maybe he retires or maybe he comes back just very, very sporadically because he's 53 years old now, and you can tell in the ring, I mean, his matches are not very good at all just because it's, I mean, it's hard to keep the stamina. You know, Ric Flair was on a podcast interview I was listening to, and he said that he doesn't know how guys like The Undertaker can come back and do a match one-off or whatever because he said he needed to have the consistent rhythm of being in the ring and the conditioning because he said there's no replacement for experience in the ring. And I don't want The Undertaker to be one of these guys, well, well, he he keeps going out there and he's been out there too long kind of a thing. Agreed. And I think that The Undertaker, there's a couple of things at, at play there. And, yes, you are absolutely correct. He was a big part of the evolution of big guys that could move. And, I mean, you know, Undertaker – Back then, it was nothing for this guy to dive over the top rope onto somebody. And that was unheard of, even for a mid-sized guy back then, much less a a super heavyweight. Mm -hmm. 
and you know, you alluded to one other guy that he was matched up with that actually had a little bit to do with that himself, Mick Foley. Yeah. Mick Foley was a heavier guy. He wasn't he wasn't one of your taller guys, but he was a close to three hundred pound guy. And I'm gonna take it all the way back to when he was Cactus Jack in NWA WCW. He was doing stuff against Sting that I'd never seen a guy that size do before. And Paul Heyman, I think, capitalized on that because he knew, you know, Mick Foley, the man, was crazy enough to do whatever it took. And he pulled him into ECW, and that was part of ECW's legend, was the matches between Terry Punk and, and Cactus Jack. And then Sandman and Cactus Jack, they had some just... Oh, my gosh, those out. were fabulous. Yeah, they had some lights out, just crazy, bloody... Matches, and then you saw a guy Sabu in there, but he was wasn't one of your bigger guys. But Sabu was magnificent. But he was. I don't want to get onto onto that. But yes, and when Kane came in, the fact that Kane was bigger than the Undertaker. I mean, Kane came in and was just a a monster. I mean, literally, to, not to use a pun because that's what they refer to him as. But when he was younger, this guy was you know Undertaker was always decently built. And, and all that, and just a big guy. But Kane came in and was was muscular. I mean, he was Undertaker's height, but then at least 20, 25 pounds heavier of muscle and could move around. I mean, when that guy wanted to do stuff, he could do it himself. He could get on the top rope. He could do some amazing stuff, you know, himself. And, I, yeah, I'm with you. I think that, you know, the evolution of the big guy that could move came with those guys, that, that group of guys. And then if you want to throw another kind of off you know off the topic guy in there was a gentleman in ecw called mike awesome yeah i remember him this guy he was amazing he was about the same size maybe a few inches shorter than those guys but just huge guy and it was nothing to see him go off the top rope go over the top rope into the crowd and and you're talking about a 300 plus pound guy you know it, it was just unheard of and i i think from the extreme side of it, he he was he helped usher that part in. And didn't ECW? I mean, I guess eventually WWF just came in and just acquired them, right? Yes, eventually that's what happened. They they did like a joint venture together when WCW was, for lack of a better term, kicking WWE butt. And Vince, I guess, got with Paul Heyman and said, "Hey, let's do a joint venture." And that's when they did like the invasion of ECW and. And all that, and they kind of went back and forth. And at that time, Vince still did not own them, but they were just trying to get together. And, and you know, Vince was borrowing ideas and things like that. And then shortly after that is when ECW signed a contract with, I think then it was called TNN, but eventually became Spike. Mm-hmm. And you may remember this this was around 99, 2000, and they got their own TV contract. But to the chagrin of Paul Heyman and a lot of the the wrestlers, you know, just like what you were talking about on on WWE and WCW, Spike wanted to water them down a little bit because they they were too extreme. So they got watered down a little bit, and then somewhere around the time WWE acquired WCW, ECW lost their contract with Spike. They kind of fell off. Unfortunately, Paul Heyman, and, and he said it himself, and of course the wrestlers have said it, he's a, he's a mad scientist, he's a genius when it comes to booking and putting videos together and music and things like that, but he was not a great businessman. The ECW kind of went defunct, and McMahon 
swung in and, and purchased all the rights to their video library. It started his own ECW, if you remember. At one time, there were three brands. There was SmackDown Raw and ECW. And yeah. Of course, it was the watered-down version. We got to see some of our old favorites, but it, it was watered-down. That, that's where that happened. So. Why do you think WCW failed? Well, I think there's a lot of variables that go into that, but the most simple of the variables is you can't let the inmates run the asylum. You can't give creative control to the talent. You just can't do it. As much as I love Hogan, as much as he's got a good mind for the business, you know, as much as Kevin Nash and Scott Hall helped wrestling, you know, and, and skyrocketed wrestling in 96 with the NWO invasion and, and all that, and I think they've all got great minds for the business. Of course, they're going to book their sales, and of course, they're going to book, you know, just ridiculous storylines for the wrong people to look good and, and things like that. You have to have a booking committee. You have to have people in charge, and it can't be the talent. I think that's the ultimate, like I said, there's many variables that go into it, but that's the ultimate demise of, of WCW. Yeah, I kind of felt like toward the end, it was like everybody and their grandmother was a part of the NWO, and then they had the NWO Red, and I, I just felt like if I was making the calls there, I would have just had one NWO. It would have been the NWO Black team with Hogan yep. and Hall and Nash, and they had, I forgot what X-Pac's name was at that time, Sean Waltman, but he was I there. I Yeah, six. Maybe like a couple of guys, because eventually I mean, it was like, Buff Bagwell was part of the NWO, Scott Norton, and these guys are like lower mid-card guys. I'm like, well, then it lost the the eliteness of it. It's like when you had the horsemen, you only had four, and it was four top guys. And so I think it was that, and from what I've, I've seen and heard, it was they had these very large guaranteed contracts, and so you had guys that didn't necessarily have the passion that they did in the past. And I think another thing, too, just to be completely frank, as much as I like Roddy Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan and things like that, they they had been doing the same act, especially Roddy Piper, had been doing the same act for 20 years. And so I know they brought Roddy Piper back, and he had some battles with Hogan. But after about the third pay-per-view, I was like, uh, I kind of need to see something else. I want to see more Eddie Guerrero. I want to see more Chris Jericho and those guys being pushed. So I think it was just a little bit of a, a bunch of things like you mentioned. But I, I, I sure hated it because just from a wrestling standpoint, we would always watch Nitro and then just kind of click over and see what was going on on Raw. But Nitro was the main show that we watched because the wrestling was better. Agreed. Let me pay my respects to, you You brought up Roddy Piper a couple of times, and I don't think that I've chimed in enough on that one. Roddy Piper is my all-time favorite bad guy. Yeah. A, a number one, A number one, best talker, just evil, mean, and the novelty of when he comes to WCW of actually Hogan being the bad guy and Piper being the face, I loved. I loved that concept at first, and I'm with you. I, I'm totally with you because they they ran it in the ground. But when they first brought Piper back, I thought it was a great move. Oh, I was excited. Uh, yeah. Me and a bunch of guys came up for the Starcade. I think it was 96. Starcade 96 in Nashville and caught that pay-per-view. Awesome pay-per-view. Awesome feeling. NWO was red hot. Piper just came in to battle them. 
you know, it, it was amazing. Dane came out of the Raptors. It, it was just a great, great show. You know, like you said, though, they went to the well one too many times with that. The older guys were holding the younger guys down. You know, we're, we're going back into the variables again of, of why WCW crashed. Chris Jericho, his character in WCW was one of my absolute favorite versions of Jericho. I thought he was just awesome. And I had seen him in ECW before that, and I knew that he did some time in Mexico as Corazon de Leon or, or Lionheart, which is where he got that nickname. But Jericho in WCW, I just thought was just great. He was so entertaining. He was so athletic. He was part of the cruiserweight division. He could also fight the heavyweight. When he brought in the security guard, Ralph, I don't know if you remember that character or not, it was just pure comedy. And I just loved it, but I felt like he was being held down by the, the ego-driven guys that were in NWO. And like you said, it, it was just too much. You, you went to NWO Red and Black, then you had LWO, and pretty soon it was just too many factions. And Four Horsemen got pushed aside, which, you know, kind of, kind of hit me in the field because I was a Four Horsemen fan from, from way back. And I'm going to be honest, one of the variables that I think took down WCW, and it, and it ties directly into what we're talking about with NWO getting too big, is the turn of Kurt Henning when he had the opportunity to become a horseman because my friends and I, and I think maybe even you and I discussed this at, at Murray, Kurt Henning was the consummate horseman. He could have been the perfect addition, no pun intended, to the four horsemen, and they ruined it. And I think they ruined it because of Bischoff. What was that other guy's name that was looking at that time? Don't oh, Vince Russo. Vince Russo. Vince Russo, that's it. You hit the nail on the head. I forgot what happened there. Because I remember when Kurt Henning came, he was part of this faction, I think it was called the West Texas Rednecks, and it was like him and Barry Windham and Dutch Mantell. And I didn't yeah. remember him wanting to be a horseman, though. So, Arn Anderson, his injury kicked in, right? Yeah. He came out and gave this big infamous speech and offered his spot to Kurt Henning. And Kurt Henning came out and tentatively accepted. And people went crazy because people for years had said, if the horsemen ever have an open spot, Kurt Henning's the guy. And they made the dream come true. And we were all going crazy. I was like, man, the horsemen are back. They're going to come back and, and get even with NWO. This is going to be a great feud, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they had a War Games match. If I'm not mistaken, it was a War Games pay-per-view. Or it was just a cage match. I can't remember. And Henning come in to save the day for the horseman and then took down Ric Flair. Oh. Started kicking it and punching him and then held up the, the horseman shirt, took the shirt off and had NWO on under it. And I said, are you kidding me? This, this, I mean, it was just a terrible, terrible storyline, terrible pay-per-view. And that was where it went sour for me. And I think a lot of fans, because they wanted to see somebody a different faction kick in and take on the NWO and be equivalent to them. Mm. Yeah, they really needed that. Because was the NWO red? I can't remember. That was with Sting. I think Lex Luger was in that. Was that right? Yeah, Kevin Nash, Hall for a short time, Conan. Because I thought they had the NWO Wolfpack and then just the regular NWO, didn't they? That's what it was, yeah. The Nash, Sting, Luger, Hall... Conan, that was the Wolfpack, and then you had Black and White. Hogan stayed over there. 
and still had Big Papa Pop and, and several of those guys. Oh, I, I guess. Because, see, once I got into law school, I didn't have as much time to watch the wrestling. And so I kind of actually, really until about, I guess, 20... 10 or so you know when I was in law school and then at the law firm working late hours I, I really didn't watch that much of wrestling and then when I did watch it after WCW ended I really didn't like the product that I saw because I'll be honest I I was not a fan of The Rock as a wrestler. I thought he was cheesy. I thought his interviews just really turned me off. And I didn't think he was a great wrestler. I, I was a big Stone Cold fan, so I was not a fan of The Rock. I was also not a fan of John Cena because his rap character really didn't appeal to me. So they didn't have a star other than Stone Cold that really turned me on as far as the wrestling. I mean, I like, I like Shawn Michaels and I like Triple H. But I, I tell you what, I started watching again, I guess it was, like I said, 2012, and I saw all these newer guys, and I saw like Seth Rollins and uh, Roman Reigns and Cesaro and Kevin Owens. I'm like, well, gosh, I don't know anything about these guys. And I saw that they were flying through the air and this and that, and so I've been watching regularly since then. But I tell you what, the state of wrestling right now is really, really good. I'm glad to see that we have AEW, and we'll get into AEW in just a little bit, because they had like TNA, Total Nonstop Action Wrestling, and some other brands, Ring of Honor, which I didn't I didn't know much about that. But now you've got guys that I don't care how big you are, except for Braun Strowman, they're flying through the ring. I mean, and I I really like the the guys that they have now, like Ricochet, who I got to kind of give a shout out to Ricochet because he's from Paducah, Kentucky originally. He yeah, went. I knew that. Yeah, he went to Reedland, where I went before I moved to Marshall County. Of course, I'm several years older than him, and I don't know him. But I didn't realize it. But now there are a lot of guys from our neck of the woods that are in wrestling because there was apparently a wrestling training school in Hardin in Marshall County, where like Ricochet went. There's a guy on AEW now that's there, and a couple of other guys. I like the the guys that are the smaller, aerialist guys. You know, your Ray Mysterios, your Ricochets, your Ali's, Seth Rollins does that. I, I love AJ Styles. So I guess talk about what you think of the WWE product right now. So I'll kind of go back to where we were. 2001 is when WWE purchased WCW, and, I, and I'm kind of with you on, on your statements on that. But I stayed with it because I thought it was a, an exciting time. You know, they did the WCW invasion, then they did the ECW invasion. Then it got watered down. And Goldberg was still under contract with Time Warner. They couldn't get him. I was a huge Goldberg guy. I'm kind of like you. I like The Rock, but, yeah, a lot of his interviews and things like that kind of, you know, I was like, okay, let, let's get in the ring and, and do our thing. Let, let's quit talking and, and start wrestling. So somewhere around 04, you know, I was a big Brock Lesnar fan, Kurt Angle fan because of their amateur background. But then I, I just kind of got out of it. I got tied up with my life and career and, and things like that. And by that time, I was already living in Smyrna around uh, late 2004. So I uh, kind of got out of it for a little bit. And then, you know, WWE went through another lull, as, as they did in the early to mid-90s, as we mentioned before. And personally, I think it's because they didn't have any competition. And so then I discovered a little wrestling organization that was based out of Nashville called Total Nonstop Action, T 
TNA. They were raw. They were they were raw talent. It was Jeff Jarrett, which I always liked the Jarrett character. You know, he was a small town boy that made it big. You know, his dad owned part of Memphis Wrestling. I remember when Jeff Jarrett first started out there, he was literally like 19, 20 years old. He weighed about 160 pounds. He was a, a pretty boy face and all that. And then, you know, he kind of developed his heel character. As I got older as a teenager and things like that, as I mentioned earlier, I started appreciating the heels more. I, I will say this, as much as I like Jarrett, I hated him as a horseman. He was not, he did not fit in with the horseman. I thought that was a bad move and a bad looking move back to the TNA, they were doing a, a weekly pay-per-view. This was how they were doing it, out of what they called the Asylum. Well, the Asylum was out of the Nashville Fairgrounds, which is a storied, historic wrestling area for, for Memphis Wrestling, NWA. Many, many wrestling organizations have, have come through there with shows, and, and it's a good venue with a lot of history. So TNA was doing their weekly pay-per-view show out of that, and they were pulling people in like... Hogan, every now and then, they were pulling Bret Hart. I mean, you, you never know, knew from week to week who they were going to pull in. Well, they got in with a organization that had some money, and as you probably know, Dixie Carter, her family owned, if I'm not mistaken, it's Panda Energy, and they've got money. So Dixie Carter come in with Jarrett and did a kind of a co-ownership type thing, and, and Jarrett was like a, a player coach type figure in that organization and their corporate headquarters, I think it may still be in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And TNA got really popular. I mean, they got big and they pulled Kurt Angle over. I don't know if you knew about this or heard about this. You said you, you didn't start watching again until around 2012. Mm-hmm. Well, around 2006, Angle, I think, kind of got tired of the WWE schedule. And, you know, they were on the road 300 days a year and things like that. And he was burned out and all that. Well, Angle kind of came over for a better deal for him, you know, travel-wise, because Angle still loved professional wrestling. He still had the bug, and he was still young. And he came over to TNA, if I'm not mistaken, around 06. And with his star power and with Jeff Jarrett and a couple other names, they got a TV contract. Again, kind of like ECW in the earlier years, they landed on Spike TV. Well, then it was a weekly episode, right? So... At the time, WWE had went dry on mid-card talent, on cruiserweight, on tag team, and on female wrestling. And I'm going to make a statement, and this may not be popular, but TNA outclassed WWE on all those areas. TNA brought back tag teams, and their tag team division was awesome from 06 to, like, 2011. Their mid-card and their cruiserweight division, which they called the X division, it was amazing. They had some talent that I had never heard of. And, you know, I was well-versed in several of the old territories, WCW, ECW. And these guys came up, and I'm like, man, where, where are these guys coming from? And, you know, these guys were a lot of your high flyers. They were extreme. The X division was, was known to be extreme. They had their own style of ring, which was the like an octagon. I don't know if you recall that. And they had like a X division match, which was just off the, the hook as far as excitement and and craziness. So they had an X division belt, the TNA knockout division, which were their women. So they had pulled Mickey James over. They had pulled Victoria 
over, but they gave her another name called Tara. You probably remember who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think her real name was Lisa Veron. And super talented wrestler, super talented wrestler. And all of them were, were easy on the eyes as well. Gail Kim, they had a lady named uh, Angelina Love, which she's very big in ROH right now. Velvet Sky. I mean, they, they had ladies that were just unbelievable, okay? Talented looks, everything. They could wrestle. And at the time, like I said, tag team wrestling was hot. They had a, a team called Beer Money, which was a guy who's, a pretty good name in WWE right now, Bobby Roode. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, and the Cowboy James Storm. If you haven't seen some of their matches, man, you need to go back and look. They they had some awesome tag team battles. Kurt Angle was, was fighting with Samoa Joe and AJ Styles. AJ Styles was the face of TNA for a long time. So I'm saying all that about TNA to say this. So another organization came up called Ring of Honor, and I just referred to it as ROH. Ring of Honor was also a little-known uh, group out of the Carolinas that came up, and they are—they have came up a long way, and they're doing their own pay-per-views, and their wrestling is unreal. They're, it, at the time, like in two, I, I'll say around 2012, 2013, 2014, Ring of Honor was doing some amazing, amazing things. It's funny because McMahon is still doing the same thing he was doing in the early 80s when he's cherry-picking talent from other organizations and building his organization. Because if you look at all the top talent right now in WWE, you're looking at TNA and ROH guys. So let's just take, for example, you mentioned Seth Rollins. He was a Ring of Honor guy. He was a big Ring of Honor guy. Let's look at AJ Styles. He was the face of TNA. Samoa Joe, TNA, superstar. Let's look at Daniel Bryan. He made his name in Ring of Honor. And that's really where it kind of started is when Daniel Bryan went over to WWE and made a big name for himself. That's when it it was like, okay, you know, these guys, he's starting to pick up on some of these indie wrestling promotions. He's starting to pick up on the the talent because fans were defecting to these smaller organizations. I'm sure I'm missing some names, but, you know, Daniel Bryan was a big one that started that. And Kevin Steen, which is now known as Kevin Owens, came from uh, Ring of Honor. Oh, he did. came over. He was the face of TNA, like I said, Samoa Joe. The list goes on and on and on. The current tag team that won the Cup last night, or the other night, on uh, Crown Jewel. Yeah, Gallows and Anderson. Yeah, Gallows is from TNA. He went went to TNA. I even seen Gallows doing a bit in a small, unknown organization here in Nashville or outside of Nashville. They may even be defunct now because I haven't seen anything on them in a couple years called SAW. But Gallows was with them, and I know he did a stint in uh, WWE back in the day on SmackDown where he had a, a tag team partner named Jesse and, and all this, and Gallows was like a, a mute guy or whatever. But then he made his name in TNA in Japan, and then now, uh, you know, WWE's picking back up on him and using his star power. Yeah. Because I don't follow Ring of Honor that close, but Ring of Honor, I think, I mean, they're still around. I think Bubba Dudley from the Dudley Boys, I, I think he's uh, over there. I forgot his character name, but he's one of the big guys now, isn't he? Bully Ray. Bully Ray, yeah, yeah Bully, Bully Ray. Ray. Yeah. Is TNA still around, too? TNA's still around, but barely hanging on. They, they were doing, they were the number two organization in the world around 20, 2010, 2011. Yeah. Hogan and Bischoff actually went over there. Kevin Nash was over there. Kurt Angle was over there. Big Papa Pump was over there. 
you know, there was a, they had the star power for a while. Sting, Sting was a yeah. regular face over there for I knew that, yeah. probably close to 10 years. Because, I mean, you said TNA, they had the financing with D- Dixie Carter. Did things change on that? Or? I may be misquoting, but I think Dixie Carter has gotten out of it now. Uh-huh. And, of, of course, they spiked, changed hands, and they, they kind of got out of that. They lost their contract. They went to another channel. Now they're on a channel called Paramount, which I think Paramount ends up being basically Spike, but, but a different name. Now, there were, you know, there were several things there. Jarrett got out of it, and Jarrett went and started his own organization called Global. They were doing well for a short time, but I think now they've kind of fallen off. Uh, you know, they were gaining steam and then kind of died out. But TNA had their last bit of star power there was a, a kid by the name of EC3. Yep, I remember him, and now he's in WWE doing nothing. Yes, and they're just not even using him. The, the guy is awesome on the mic. He's built, good wrestler, draws heat. People hate him. People love to hate him. Good heel, and and they're just not even using him. They're basically burying him. And he was the last big name or, or big talent, as far as I know. Now, I may be misquoting because I haven't watched TNA in quite a while, but I do know it's still around. He was the last bit of star power in TNA and they pulled him over so there again they're, they're pulling over TNA guys ROH guys killing the company Adam Cole which was your NXT winner last night mm-hmm. he beat he beat Daniel Bryan Adam Cole was a the face of ROH for a while you know it's just I'll bring up another one Phil Brooks is his real name and I can't even think of his wrestling name now Phil Brooks the straight edge oh okay yeah you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, I know who you're talking about. What was his name? Oh, uh, CM Punk. CM Punk. Wow, why could I not think of that? Anyway, CM Punk was also a Ring of Honor product. So really, Daniel Bryan, the Daniel Bryan CM Punk era when they first came over was a direct cherry pick from Ring of Honor. Those guys were big stars in Ring of Honor. You know, I mean, and it's so there you have it. It's been going on for 10 plus years where they've been cherry picking from TNA and and Ring of Honor, and you know, they brought Sting over from TNA, they brought Kurt Angle back over from TNA, Kevin Nash signed a legend contract, he had been with TNA for a while, and I'd actually been to a couple TNA events, man, I went to the, the last night at the fairgrounds, I went to Flammiversary 07, here in Nashville, it was, you know, they were good, they were good events, but said all that to say this, basically what you're looking at in WWE right now, your question was, you know, what what's the talent like now? It's from those two organizations, and you know that's good. I mean, good good for WWE and and them for raising their talent and recognizing the talent out of the smaller organizations. I just hate it because it seems to kill those other organizations. Yeah, I, I do think one thing that WWE has done a good job of. They have that performance center that used to be in Tampa. NXT used to be in Tampa. It was like Florida Championship Wrestling, and they had a minor league uh, called Smoky, not Smoky Mountain Wrestling, Ohio Valley Wrestling in Louisville. And and that was around when I was in law school, like the early 2000s. And I know, gosh, even a law school classmate of mine, he was involved as a manager, which I thought was pretty cool. But he had like Kevin Owens run through there and Randy Orton and different guys. They have developed a good minor league system where they're bringing people in to um, the training ground, and then they go up to NXT, and NXT used to be the minor league, and now it's becoming its own brand. The thing I, I get worried about with WCW or WWE now 
is you've you've got a lot of guys that are just not booked properly, in my opinion, and they're underused. And EC3 is a perfect example of that. I mean, that guy in his real life, he's good friends with Braun Strowman and Drake Maverick. I mean, why not do an angle with with him and Braun Strowman? Because Braun Strowman's another guy. I I love his character, but they had him lose an account out to Tyson Fury. It was a joke. I couldn't I couldn't believe it on um, Crown Jewel. And I'm like, his whole character was this big, strong guy, six foot eight, three hundred eighty five pounds, going in and dominating people. I mean, he's he's surviving being in garbage truck compactors pushing over trucks and stuff and and then when he gets to a big match they kill him in it like when he fought Brock Lesnar and he lost that I mean I, I think with with him I think his reign is he's going to be like a big John Stud I think unless they put a belt on him soon I mean he had that t- the tag title for a while but it, right now he's always been this big intimidating guy who can't win the big one you know, I saw some things in the background like, well, did he show up late for some events or he did something in the locker room that wasn't they didn't like or whatever. But that's a guy that if they don't put a belt on him soon, I think all of his momentum is going to go down because he was really hot about two years ago and now he's kind of like the mid-level. And, and he needs to have somebody that he can go against. So they've got to do something there. A guy that I really, really like, I love AJ Styles. I love Daniel Bryan's character. I I like Roman Reigns. I know he caught a lot of flack for getting the title kind of handed to him, and I think some of that was justified, but that's the booking, not him individually. But he he's really improved since I started watching. I mean, and he has good moves. Uh, he's agile. He flies through the air. You know, he's a good talker. I, I think he's good. I love Kevin Owens. I love the, um, the switch they made to make him kind of like the modern day Stone Cold because you've got to have a face that kind of appeals to basically the Southerners and that culture of the blue collar person. It worked with Dusty Rhodes, uh, worked with Stone Cold. I mean, you've got to have a face like that. So I like oh, his... Man. I like his new move, and I, I think they're going to do a, a segment with him and AJ Styles, which I think is going to be fantastic because when AJ Styles came to WWE and they put him with John Cena, I thought they were going to bury him and give Cena the push, but they didn't, and I thought that was the right move because I love AJ Styles. Talk about um, you know some of these guys who... Um, like Ricochet and Ali, these these high flyers. Because we talked about the Jericho and the Eddie Guerreros and Dean Malenko's back in the day, but talk about these guys now that Chad Gable or now Shorty G, they can really just wrestle the benefit they bring to the organization right now. So Chad Gable, is he captures my heart because of the amateur background and skills that he possesses with that. And I, I just think it transitions so well. And I think putting him on Hogan's team for this uh, pay-per-view Thursday night was was a very good move. They needed to push him because he was one of those guys that he was kind of just languishing, and he's too talented just to sit on the sidelines. Agreed. Agreed. And uh, Ricochet, I can't say enough about that kid. He he is just amazing. I think he would have fit in great with the cruiserweights back in the day. I think he would have fit in great in ECW. I think he fits in great really wherever you put him just because of the talent level and the look. I mean, he's a good-looking kid. He's he's talented. I think it, the sky's the limit for him. The high flyers, I mean, the young talent right now is, is amazing. But I'm going to 
use that to segue back into something that you were covering just a few minutes ago. WWE's problem, you know, every they go through this cycle. They get too much talent, and they don't know what to do with it. Right. They don't know how to book it. They don't know how to keep everybody relevant. They've got literally too much talent, and they can't do anything with it. Like you said, right now, EC3 is being buried, and he is a, a superstar. I mean, this guy could... Uh, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I think he could go to AEW and make an immediate impact and draw draw money. Yeah, well, that's why WWE. You know, you hear these rumors on the internet and like teams like the Revival that they ask for their release or Luke Harper, and that what WWE does is they offer them like a huge extension to stay. But I think it's going to be interesting because, like you said, there are too many guys that are talented and just not getting the push. But go ahead and finish what you were talking about. I'll touch on Crown Jewel a little bit. You were talking about we were talking about the young guys, the young talent. Yeah. One thing I, I kind of buried WWE from the '90s to the early 2000s about dropping the ball on tag team wrestling. But one thing in Crown Jewel that I really noticed and here lately on the, the show, the episodes is they, they're kind of going back to the tag team, and I love that. I think it's great. You mentioned the revival. I think they are a solid tag team. I think Gallows and Anderson are are awesome. I love that they have put Bobby Roode with Ziggler. I love Ziggler. I think Ziggler was being buried. I think that mm-hmm. he is way too talented to not be put out in the forefront. You know, at one time they pushed him, and then they let him get buried, and then they pushed him again, and then they let him get buried. It's just kind of a, it's been a cycle in his career. Yeah. And I think he's talented, man. I think he's good on the mic. I think he's a good athlete. Bobby Roode is in the – he's not a young guy anymore. But I've been a Bobby Roode fan since the TNA days, and you know I think he's in the best shape of his life yeah. right now. I think he looks great. Putting him with Ziggler, I think they could be an amazing tag team. Bobby Roode is a great tag team wrestler. Bobby Roode is a great singles wrestler if they would give him the push. And I know for a while they they put the U.S. belt on him, but I, I think that they should make them a, a true tag team. And one thing that WWE does that makes me mad is they'll throw superstars together but they won't give them a team name. They won't make them walk out together as a team. They'll, you know, they'll keep them divided. They'll come out on their own music, and they won't call them a specific thing, and then they wonder why people don't buy them as a tag team. You know, they give them a team name and make them, make them do the tag team circuit. Yeah, you know, we haven't touched on the women's division yet, but we will in a second. But on that point, though, like Mandy Rose and um, Sonya Deville, that's a team that... I, I can't really figure out because Mandy Rose should really be getting a bigger push and they were going to give her a push, but yet are they fire and desire or are they now coming out as Mandy Rose and Sonya Deville? Sometimes it was individual entrances. Now right. it's collective. They kind of need to make a decision on, on, on those ladies and go. Cause I tell you what, Sonya Deville, she can wrestle and Mandy Rose, Mandy Rose obviously has the look, you know, she's actually lives in, um, in South Florida, where I am, but 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 she's raw and she's not at the level of a Charlotte Flair or an Alexa Bliss or Sasha Banks or Becky Lynch. But they're gonna have to do something with them because I mean they've just got too many women there that are just kind of floundering, like Dana Brooke and you know Carmella's hot for a, a season, then she's she's off. Oh, who's the the black wrestler who's really the athletic girl? Trinity. Trinity Fatu, I think is her real name. Maybe, you know, she might be off. Right. Maybe maybe she's expecting a baby or something. But to your point, yeah, about the, these tag teams, it's like they need to have an identity and go with it. Like going to the tag teams, 
two teams I really like. I like the Viking Raiders, and I really like um, Heavy Machinery. I love Otis. Yeah. So I think that they should push those two teams to to have a feud. I think those two teams should feud with each other. I, I do too, because I mean the Viking Raiders they've got to be heels. I mean, but that one guy, the the real big guy, Ibar, that guy's out there doing cartwheels and stuff, and he's got to be three hundred and fifty pounds. I hate to say it, but this is a perfect segue. Guess where those guys came from? Ring of Honor. Ring of Honor. Yep. Once again. Yep. I am excited about their tag team division. Um, I hope they can just push it more. And I was reading online where, um, like, they're trying to figure out what to do with the New Day right now because Kofi lost the title, which I thought it was absolutely ridiculous how he lost to Brock Lesnar in, like, like a second. I mean, that was just ridiculous. They could have had him lose, but with a, a better match. With Xavier Woods out with an ACL injury, he's out for a year. And so they're like, well, do you keep the New Day as baby faces or do you turn them heel? I don't think you can turn the New Day heel. I mean, they're just, no, they're I, so I, over. I and I just think if you turn them heel, I mean, what's, what's the character going to be? It's going to be, I mean, it's going to come across as politically incorrect here, but it's going to be the African-American tag team that feels disrespected and complaining. And I'm like, I don't like that look from those guys because their whole no. mission has been positivity and that they've come across over hurdles and they've succeeded. And I think that in society right now is a message that needs to continue to be pushed rather than somebody Great. complaining about it. So I hope they don't make that change. I love Biggie. I mean, that guy, he can talk, he can move. I, I really like that that character he has. And with Kofi, with all that he does in the community and the New Day as well, if you turn them heel, but yet they're out in the community visiting kids in the hospital and all that stuff that they do, it makes no sense. It's not a believable gimmick. And I'll agree with you 100%. That squash match that Kofi lost, I, I absolutely hate it. And I have to say, I'm a huge, and this is an unpopular opinion, I'm a huge Brock Lesnar fan. But I think that they book him to squash talent that, that shouldn't be squashed. Do I agree that he should have beat Kofi? Yeah, probably. But not in the manner that was done. I think that was pretty disrespectful, and that kind of was a was tarnishing Kofi's title reign. Now, what in my opinion, what I think they should do with New Day is leave them just like they are. Why can't... Big E and, and Kofi just take off, off where they left off with the guy that got injured. You know, they, they should just keep pushing them as they, as they love to tag team because they are. They're highly popular. Kids love them, you know. And there again, back to my thing, it's part of the tag team division, which has really come, come full circle. We're back to having hot tag teams again. And I feel like we should keep pushing them. You know, I think that's what WWE needs to do. So yeah. I think that they could take off with it and, and – just keep pushing them as they are. Yeah, I think so. And I would like to see them match up Heavy Machinery and the Viking Raiders, though, because if you look at those teams, you got Otis and um, Tucker. Tucker's like six foot eight, but I mean, he's doing cartwheels just like Ibar, the big guy for the Viking Raiders. And yep. Otis is so over right now. I mean, he is yep. so funny. He has the charisma. So they really need to give them a push. And I don't know what's going to happen with the titles. And Raw because the Viking Raiders are the champions, but at Crown Jewel they lost to um, Gallows and Anderson for the best team in the world. So that kind of suggests that, that they may drop the title, but you know who knows. 
And, you know, the Revival, too, that's a team where for such a long time they were getting buried, and it was, like, making no sense because they were coming from NXT, and they were this hot team. And, you know, they were kind of the modern-day version of Tully Blanchard and um, Arn Anderson. But I was like, dang, you know, put them with the Usos. And they finally did because they're just really good with the right booking. I mean, they – they come across as great heels. I want to get your input on the recent Bray Wyatt, Seth Rollins feud. What did you think of that? The fact that they're keeping Bray Wyatt significant is huge to me because I'm a big Bray Wyatt fan. I think that they have let him evolve good, but one thing that I absolutely hate is they did away with the Wyatt family. The Wyatt family was hot. They, they were drawing money. People, they were great heels. People were scared of them. It's beyond me why that they did away with that whole scenario. I mean, okay, yeah, it's the same thing in and out, and then let it die, but then bring them back because you still got Harper and uh, what's the uh, Rowan? Yeah, Harper and Rowan. You still got them out there just kind of floundering. I mean, let's get them back together, man. Let let's pull the Wyatt family back together, and they can be with the Fiend. You know, the Fiend has evolved, but everybody knows it's still Bray Wyatt. Mm-hmm. So let's bring the Wyatt family back together. You know. I know you're a huge Roman Reigns fan, but I'll be honest, I was highly disappointed when they broke up the Shield because I thought the Shield was amazing. I thought that was a good concept. They were like the modern-day NWO, but even mm-hmm. more athletic. I absolutely loved it. I thought they were great. And then when they started breaking up, I was like, here we go again. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that because um, that was where Dean Ambrose was in his best. Of course, I think his move to AEW was a good one. Dynamite. What did you think about the... The overall matches, though, because I thought the last match they had at Crown Jewel was better than the Hell in the Cell match. I thought that was, but I'm I'm kind of hoping that this this is over because Seth Rollins, I just I didn't like him in this feud. I thought he kind of came across as, I mean, when he does the stomp on the Fiend seven times and that's his main move and he can't pin the guy, I think it makes him look weak. I also I didn't I didn't like the the red mat color for the match because while I can see it on TV, if I'm in the audience, I don't think you see it too good. And I think, I don't know who he goes against, but I mean, I think they need to do something with Bray Wyatt versus um, Ron Strowman because it's kind of a battle of former Wyatt family guys because I'm just, I'm really concerned from Braun. I I love Braun Strowman's character. I follow him on Instagram. uh, It's at Adam Shear, but I'm worried that he's at a point where he's, He's going down the wrong path. He needs to have a, a feud that he's going to win something soon. Because Seth Rollins, they could easily put him into a battle with like Shinsuke Nakamura, who I think would be a good matchup, a good technical wrestler, or something like that. You know, there aren't that many people that Bray, that Braun Strowman can go against and make it a believable feud because he's so big. Right. And they're not going to push him over Brock. So overall, Crown Jewel was, was decent. I really did like the tag team scenario, the way they did that. That was, I guess they had done that format before and I missed it, but I kind of liked that tag team elimination tournament. I thought it was pretty pretty cool. And it, it showcased the tag teams again. I loved Natalia. You know, I, I love that they pushed the limits there in Saudi Arabia with the women's division. I think it was an awesome move and I think it's great to show that women are evolving. Natalia's another one. I think that she should be pushed more than she is. She's been old faithful 
in the women's division forever, and she's from the great lineage of the Hart family. You know, I think they've done that one right. And I agree 100% about the red background format for the, the main event. I thought the main event was booked well, but I think that red format was, was terrible. Yeah. Especially for fans there, I have to agree with you. And even watching it on TV, it was like, okay, are they ever going to lighten it up so we can really, you know, watch this match or what's going on here? You commented a couple times on Braun. You hit the nail on the head with the Big John stud. And I'm going to go even more recent. Man, the Big Show. The Big Show was wasted. They yeah. never booked him like they should have. Big Show should have been dominant in the, in the way that Andre the Giant was dominant. Well, he was dominant in WCW when he was part of NWO as the Absolutely. Giant. Absolutely. When, when he first came on, even before NWO, his first match, he came out and pinned Hogan for the belt. And, you know, but WWE has never used him correctly. They, He's a huge guy. He can't hardly be beat, you know, but yet they let everybody and their brother come in and beat him. And it's just, you know, even when Braun was first coming up, they allowed Big Show to get dominated. And I was like, yeah, Braun's a big, strong guy, but Big Show's even bigger. So why are y'all letting him just, just put people over all the time? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm afraid that they're going to do that with Braun, and they're famous for doing that with some of the bigger guys. You know, Big Show was wasted for how many years? Mark Henry was wasted, in my opinion, for, for close to 20 years and didn't get a big push until very late in his career where he became the champion. So yeah. I feel like that they're, they're wasting the talent there. I'm, I'm in 100% agreement with you on, on that. And then to circle back around, I think Crown Jewel overall was a success. I'm not sure, and maybe you can enlighten me a little bit on why they keep going to the well over there. Why do they keep doing pay-per-views over there in the Middle East? I mean, why, why are we doing that so much here lately? Well, I think they had a big contract. I think it was a three-year contract for a ton of money to go over there, and they were trying to expand the brand over into um, that area. I mean, that's the whole reason why Jinder Mahal was booked as a champion. So they're tr- just trying to expand more in, in Europe, in the Middle East, in China. My take from Crown Jewel, I felt it was okay. I felt the best match, in my opinion, was AJ Styles' match. I forgot the guy he wrestled as a young I think Latin guy, I forgot his name, but he was really good, as was AJ Styles. I like the you know the technical part, so they were very good. Cesaro's match was against a guy from Saudi Arabia that you know Cesaro had to put him over, but man, Cesaro is so good. I mean, he is so good. I, I, I love Cesaro, and he's actually a really nice guy in person. I, I met him, believe it or not, on an airplane flying from Charlotte to Pittsburgh when I did a short stint in the Pittsburgh area for my career. Cesaro and several, several superstars were on there. This was back when Cesaro was first getting his start. The main guy that was was there, too, was... What was the guy that used to pile around with the Miz? He carried his briefcase and stuff around. And then all of a sudden, he just disappeared. You know, Alex Riley. You remember Alex Riley? No. They call him A-Rye? Yeah, I guess he left before I started watching again. He was a, a, one of Miz's guys, and, you know, he really supported uh, Miz, and Miz won a lot because of Alex Riley's interference. You know, he always had him out at the ring with him. Alex supposedly being taken under Miz's wing, and then, of course, they turned on each other and had a big feud and all that. But Alex Riley actually sat right behind me on this plane, and I turned around and asked him, I was like, are you Alex Riley? He said, I sure am. 
and man, we had like an hour long conversation <laughs> on the flight. He was just amazing. Just a just a really good guy. Those guys are really super nice, but Yeah. And that's what you like when they're superstars and they're famous like that and they they can spend an hour speaking with just a regular guy like me, you know, just a fanboy. Yeah, well I'll see um Ron Stroman um on Instagram and because he lives in that Orlando area, because a lot of the a lot of the wrestlers in WWE they live in Orlando or or Tampa, so he'll post on Facebook like he's friends with EC3 and Drake Maverick, and he goes into like these karaoke bars or whatever, and he's like in his t-shirt and shorts and singing karaoke and just hanging out with different people. So they're they're pretty laid back. One thing I also didn't like because I thought the tag match tournament. I thought that was good for those teams. I also liked the way they did the Flair versus Hogan thing because they obviously weren't going to allow the Hogan team to lose, but I thought it was important to showcase guys like Chad Gable, Ricochet, especially Ali. Yeah. But I did not like the Brock Lesnar match. I thought it was a waste to bring in Cain Velasquez for that. I mean, you know, I, I know they had this battle back in MMA, and I'm not a big MMA person, so I don't know. But I'm like, if they were going to have a rematch, don't do it nine years later. Maybe bring it, like, sooner than that. But I just thought it was weird because the match was like an MMA match, and then it ended so abruptly. And then if they're wanting to put over a feud with Rey Mysterio and Brock Lesnar, they already had the ammunition when Brock Lesnar beat up Rey Mysterio's son on the show. So... Right. I just thought it was something where, hey, if you're going to give a title match to to somebody at a big pay-per-view, give it to one of the guys who's on the wrestling team. And that's the thing with Tyson Fury. I, I really hated that match because, I mean, I really I didn't know who he was. I'm not a big bo- boxing fan. But the thing is, is it's not believable to me that he would go and take it to Braun Strowman because Braun Strowman's this big guy, big muscular guy. And frankly, T- Tyson Fury, yeah, he's a great boxer, but his conditioning looked horrible. I mean, he had huge yeah. love handles. St- and yeah, I'm he like, was out of shape. Out of shape. And, and really, Kane was disappointing. The first time when I saw Kane, like several, several weeks back on SmackDown or whatever it was, when he took his shirt off, I was like, please get in shape before the match. I know. And he did. You could tell he was conditioning. He was in much better shape Thursday night than he was when he first came out. This goes back to something we talked about about an hour ago when they are notorious for bringing in star power and big names to hype up an event. Now, storyline-wise, I think it was a good move to bring Kane in because, you know, he had actually defeated... Lesnar in real life in MMA, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that they have to try to bring in names that that is that are believable. That's why they brought Goldberg back what two years ago mm-hmm. to come in and squash Lesnar because Goldberg was about the only character out there that was believable at the time. So I think that the the, the move in itself was good, but I hate it when they bring star power in and they're not trained, they're not set up for the show, they're not you know. Kane's got a long way to go if they're going to make a wrestler out of him. And I'm okay with it if they do. Don't just bring him in for a one-off, but maybe they should have built him up a little bit more before I agree. they put him in headlining a, a pay-per-view. But just yeah. the fact that they brought a guy in that really beat up Lesnar in real life is a good move because it's believable. You know, they, they're like giving you the thought that, hey, this, you know, Lesnar can actually be afraid of somebody instead of just coming in and squashing somebody like he did with with Kofi, and I think part of the reason is they are building it up with Ray, but Ray has a legit injury. 
So mm-hmm. they're they're trying to get time for Ray to, to get healed up so they can have their feud. Yeah. And the thing with Brock Lesnar is I mean, honestly, some of the best matches I've seen Brock Lesnar have was not with the big guys, but with the the smaller guys. Like when he had that match with Finn Balor for the title, I thought that was a great match. I thought his matches with AJ Styles at first, he was, I mean, just dominating AJ Styles. But then that turned into a good match. Um, The Daniel Bryan one was a good one. So he can wrestle with the smaller guys. I mean, he... You know, Brock Lesnar is a is a great athlete. I remember when he first started, he was doing flips off the top of the turnbuckle. But I just felt they could have, like you said, if they're going to bring in Cain Velasquez, build him up where he's dominating some people and things like that, but they didn't do it. One thing, because I know uh, you're going to be short on time here, and we're going to have to talk about AEW in another episode. We haven't touched on the women division in WWE, and I've got to tell you, the women's division is fantastic. I honest, honestly think a lot of their matches, the high-profile ones, they're as good as what the men are doing. I mean, Becky Lynch and that transition to the character of the man has been f- fantastic. And Charlotte Flair is tremendous in the ring, outside the ring. I mean, Sasha Banks is great. I'm glad she's back. I like the Bailey heel turn. So talk about the women's division and your thoughts on um, that in WWE. So I am a huge Charlotte Flair fan, uh, for obvious reasons, because I'm a huge Ric Flair fan. The storyline, the lineage, you know, all of that goes well. And I had mentioned Natalia earlier, and I and honestly, I think that the what they used, I think they used to call them the Divas Division. They finally took a page out of the TNA Knockout Division back around 20, 2008 to two thousand twelve. Mm-hmm. The TNA Knockout, they, they were just running rough shot over women's wrestling back then. I mean, they had ODB, they had Mickey James, they had, you know, a, a lot of those names over there. Lacey Von Eric, you know, uh, Angelina Love, those, all those names. And they, athletically and, and storyline-wise, they were just dominating WWE, in my opinion. I think now WWE has taken a page from that, and they have, have evolved with Charlotte Flair coming out, like you said, Becky Lynch. I'm not crazy about the whole man thing but I think Becky Lynch the character is awesome I think she's a good wrestler and I think she's tough and she showed her toughness when she got her nose broke I know that was an iconic Uh, moment when that happened I mean that just that made her character pop yes absolutely she won my heart on that one because she just kept on going and didn't show any sign of weakness or or anything she just kept trucking and you know you you got the Bellas are kind of out of it now. They helped to springboard it a little bit. You got Trinity Fatu, which I can't even think of her real name. We talked about that earlier. It begins with a V. I can't remember. But anyway, you know, she, she's very good. Yeah, she's a great athlete. I, I think the women's division is better now in WWE than it's ever been. I agree. And, and I love watching them. I, and I agree with you. A lot of the matches are just as good, if not better, than, than the men's now. So I think they've really turned a corner. And and that match Thursday night was a huge, huge step for the women to perform in the Middle East. I thought I thought that was just groundbreaking. So yeah, and I think you know they've got a lot of women going back to the too much talent and um, not enough airtime kind of a thing. I mean, I haven't seen oh shoot, who is the the trio? It was Ruby Riot, the Riot Squad. I haven't seen right. them in a long time. I think Ruby Riot had an injury. 
But, you know, they were good when they were there. Liv Morgan's been on the sideline, but I've, I think they're going to try to bring her back because, I mean, she's that pretty blonde who – I love her to death. I think she's cute as a button and she's got an evil side to her. I think they're not exposing her enough. I, I think that they – Liv Morgan, I, you said you follow some guys on Instagram. I actually follow her, and I she's great. I think Mandy Rose is great. I, Alexa Bliss is – Alexa Bliss fun. is fantastic. That whole idea where she was paired with Nikki Cross and everybody was thinking, okay, well, she's just using Nikki Cross, and they had the whole thing where she's doing the interviews with the coffee. That turned into such a great thing that, I mean, I don't think WWE was expecting it, and so they probably scrapped their plans, and they've been pushing Nikki Cross. But I think at some point... You know, they're going to have to decide what they want to do. I talked about Mandy Rose and uh, Sonya Deville. They're they're going to have to decide what they're going to do with them because they're kind of at the point now where I think they're either going to go way up or they're going to go down. And one of the reasons for that is I think they want to push Mandy Rose because of her look, but they don't get a pop when they come out. When Charlotte Flair comes out, or Becky Lynch, obviously, Alexa Bliss, they get huge pops. And you can't have somebody as one of your top stars and them not get a pop when they come out. And so I I think, I don't know what they're going to have to do, but I think they're going to have to do something because the idea is for Mandy Rose to sort of be like the, the Trish Stratus from back in the day. And Asuka, you know, I'm glad that they were, did the the change with Oscar and Carrie Sane and made them heal because Oscar is a very talented wrestler, but she got I'm that title and then fan. she was. I'm a huge fan, and I love the Green Myth. Yeah, from the great spin off right from the Great Muda. I think it's it's awesome. I think what they're doing with her is, is awesome. I think she's a great talent. Yeah. So what's well, definitely going to be interesting because of course they have NXT now. You know, what they did last night for SmackDown, they had um, they basically had a situation where they kind of had to go on the flies what they were going to do with SmackDown because a lot of the talent that was in Saudi Arabia, they had plane problems, so they couldn't get back to New York for the, the taping of SmackDown. So literally on the fly, they had to do like an NXT takeover. And yeah. so I thought it went over pretty well because right now AEW is kicking NXT's butt in the ratings. And but so they had to do something to kind of showcase NXT more. So they moved Finn Balor over there, but they did a takeover where literally like all the stars came over and they were just dominating the the SmackDown talent. And in a way, I didn't have a problem with it because I'm like, you know what? They had to come up on the fly with some type of angle to make it interesting. And they obviously had a lot of key talent like Roman Reigns and AJ Styles, others that were not there. They had to go on the fly. But I didn't. And they need to push NXT to get those ratings up and make them um, more visible to a bigger audience. But that being said, I thought it was bad to have them go in and dominate because they had Daniel Bryan lose to Adam Cole. They had The Miz lose to Thomas Miyaso or Siamo, whatever you say his name. Yeah, and and those guys, you know, Cole and Ciampa, they're they're very good. But I thought it made SmackDown look weak at that point. But they they were saying they're trying to use it to promote, I guess, the upcoming War Games or Survivor Series. Give me your take on this extra brand with NXT and being on Wednesday nights now as an official equal brand, not the minor league anymore. I am a fan 
because I thought the NXT talent was being put on the back burner. One thing I despised was when Samoa Joe and AJ Styles and a lot of those guys, Kevin Steen, which it was Kevin, or Kevin Owens, which was Kevin Steen, and a lot of those guys came through. They made them go through NXT like they had to prove themselves. Well, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, guys, these guys are on a world stage. They have nothing else, else to prove. You need to go ahead and put them on the main stage because that's what the fans want to see. Don't hold them back. Well, Tommaso Ciampa is just the same. He was a stud in, in Ring of Honor. I mean, he was a holy terror over there. You know, I think he's a tough, tough guy. I'm in agreement with you that they shouldn't have just came over and dominated SmackDown. But I think it's good that they're putting them on an equal level because they have equal level talent. Adam Cole was a stud in Ring of Honor as well. He was the face over there for a while. I think it's a good plan. I think that they're doing this to be in direct competition with AEW. I know we're going to touch that on a, on a different episode, but I think that that's their main strategy is to try to go head-to-head with AEW, and I don't know that NXT is the right move to do that because AEW is on fire right now, and it, it's early. But, again, we'll talk about that in a future episode. Yeah. You're short on time, and, I mean, we, we could talk – about wrestling a whole lot more and really we we didn't give we didn't give enough attention to like the women's division and obviously AEW we, we'll do that on a subsequent episode those are some exciting brands right now and they deserve a a lot of discussion but as a wrestling fan though it's interesting to see where it started to grow in the 80s and then it had a lull a couple of times but now I I think wrestling's really hot right now and I think it's in a in a good place and in a way, WWE has a problem where they have too much talent and they, they don't know what to do with them. So that's a that's a problem, but it does give the opportunity for like the NXTs to come up and um, AEWs because you've just got so many people interested in, in the profession. You know, it brings in the, rate, the ratings and revenue and people are interested in it now who grew up in the 80s and now they're like us. They're 40 years old and you got people 50, 60 years old following it and they're trying to you know, keep it with the young kids too. So I think right. it's an exciting time. It's just they may have to have some more TV stations for all the talent that needs to be exposed. Agreed. And I would like to see, you know, McMahon and Triple H not toward their contracts, let the guys go back to TNA or or ROH that, that want to and, and let them go back and make a name for themselves. I mean, let's have some healthy competition. It makes everybody better. Yeah. I think it's going to come down to the fact for, like if someone goes to TNA or some of these other divisions, are they going to be able to get the money? Because at the end of the day, generally your wrestling career is not a very long career. They don't have insurance or 401K and all that, so they want to try to maximize as much money as they can. And that's how AEW, they're able to compete because i mean chris jericho said he got the biggest contract in his career by going to aew so i mean about i would like to see some of these guys like ec3 not be on the sideline um you know mojo raleigh i mean you know they were pushing that guy for a little bit but i mean i don't know what they're doing with him and i mean he's just basically sitting there collecting a check which i guess is okay for him but i mean he has no wrestling direction right now he's not building his brand yeah a guy like apollo cruz that's another guy where you know a great talent 
he doesn't really have the charisma and they're trying to pair him up with Titus O'Neil brand and stuff, but that didn't work. But that's another guy that it's like, you know, bring back a, a manager like slick from back in the day or something. I mean, give this guy a manager and a mouth. Well, anyway, I know um, you got ahead. I really appreciate you taking the time to come out and talk wrestling. Um, you'll be my recurring wrestling uh, guest. We'll discuss well, all the pay-per-views and stuff. It. And it, it was good to, to catch up with you, and it was good to really talk wrestling with somebody. Uh, very few friends of mine that I can sit down and talk for multiple hours. I really think we could have took this show on for about six hours <laughs> and uh, touched on everything, but... Yeah, well, you know, and it's kind of funny because, um, I mean, we've been friends for a while, and, of course, through Facebook, you were able to stay in touch, but we had kind of corresponded a few years ago, like, you know what, we should start a wrestling podcast and this and that, and so now i got the show, and I was like, well, I want to be able to talk wrestling, and i got to be able to talk with someone who knows it, so you're like the right. obvious person to come on, so I'll have you back. Well, I definitely appreciate it. It was a pleasure and an honor, and it was good to actually uh, hear your voice again. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on. We'll stay in touch. You know, thanks again. We'll be back discussing the next uh, pay-per-view. Yes, sir. One thing I'll say as we're closing, go Cardinals. Yeah. Boy, we took it on the <laughs> we took it on the the nose with the Nationals, though. But yeah, hopefully the Cardinals will retool in a few areas and be back. But, phew, man, the Nationals just dominated us. So I was kind of glad to see them go ahead and win the World Series after beating the Cardinals. If, if the Cardinals got to get put out, I want them to get put out by the champions. So it worked out. Yeah. So, all right, Scott, well, I appreciate you coming on. So uh, have a great uh, weekend. Yes, sir, you do the same. We'll, we'll talk to you later. All right. I'll see you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So I'd like to thank my friend Scott Tudor for coming on the podcast today and uh, talk wrestling. Uh, as you can tell, we're both very um, into wrestling. There's a lot to talk about because it's been uh, around for many, many years. And the, the fan base for wrestling is very, very passionate. We follow it close, and we we want the best product to be out there. So uh, it's always fun to talk about uh, wrestling. So I appreciate Scott coming on. So anyway, hope everyone has a great week and we'll be back for another episode of living the dream next week. Thanks a lot and have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us online at Ben and Rodney.com and follow us on Instagram at Ben Wilson, Miami. Miami.